Thank you for worshiping with us today. Have a Bible, and I hope that you do. Would you open up to John chapter 1 today? We'll begin our time together by reading the first 13 verses, and we'll study this chapter um, towards the latter half of our uh, time together. But I want to begin by reading God's Word. I believe there's so much power in this passage, something that God has to say to all of us, so such an important uh, word to hear from Him. So if you have your place in John 1, this is John's Word to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, without him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, I want to start our time together by asking you a question, and we do this a lot, but this is a bit different. Rather than asking you a rhetorical question, uh, I'd like you to actually answer it, not out loud. You can answer it out loud if you want to, but it might be a little bit difficult to hear what everybody's saying. Uh, I, I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I do want you to write down in your own words, uh, on your bulletin, on a notebook, on a piece of paper, on your phone, so you can make a note on your phone if you want to. Um, wherever you can make a quick note, I want everybody to participate this, in this, and it's very simple. You already know the answer before I even ask you the question, so don't worry. Um, it's not one of those weird questions like, what's the first empire that ruled the world and everybody got that one wrong, right? I got that one wrong until I started researching it. Maybe not, but I'm trying to relate to you. Um, But anyway, not one of those questions. I won't ever ask one of those questions again, at least not with the Jeopardy music. Um, But I think our answers will uh, be pretty definite, but I think it's going to spark a great conversation over the next couple of weeks. Um, And I think this is going to be a good exercise uh, that will cause us to want to know more because maybe we'll think, well, is there more to know? Um, And hopefully it will intrigue us to listen closer and dig deeper over the next couple of weeks. And again, I promise you, it's a very simple, easy question. You all know the answer, so don't worry. Um, So the question is, really the questions are that I'd like you to answer, and and I'm gonna keep talking while you answer them because again, that's how easy the question is. Um, So the questions are, who is Jesus and why do we worship him? So if you wanna just pull your phone out, make a note, don't get too distracted, but make a note on your phone, write it down on a notebook, on a notepad, note card, sticky note, um, in the margins of your Bible, if that's that's something you do. Who is Jesus and why do we as a collective, why do we worship the man named Jesus? Who is Jesus? Why do we worship him? On what basis do we regard him as an object or as the center of our worship? What did he come to do and what did he do that deserves the worship that we give him? Now, I think most of you are probably thinking, well, that's a silly question, Justin, because why would we be here if we did not know who Jesus was and if we did not worship him? And if that's the case, then I'm glad that that you're that firm in your faith. But uh, I'm sure somebody's thinking, 
Well, if I'm honest, Justin, um, I, was come, I came here today because I wanted you to answer these questions for me, or I come here every week because I hope that you can answer these kind of questions for me. And, and if that's your position today, uh, that's even better that we open this way because I think there's going to be some help coming your way. And uh, I think no matter where you come from and what your position is, uh, I think even for professing believers, there's some that really don't know how to put it in a succinct, personal way. Yes, we've heard of Jesus, we worship, we sing to Jesus, and we kind of know about Jesus. But if you were to put us on the spot and say, who is Jesus? In a you know, quick couple word summary, who is Jesus and, and what did he do? Or who is Jesus and why do we worship him? I bet there's some of us, if we're being honest, we don't really know what to say. And, and maybe we don't know how to say it in a way that we would feel comfortable repeating it. And if that's your case, that's great. Uh, that's okay. Uh, it's a good thing that you're here today. So back to the questions. Who is Jesus and why do we worship him? If we were to go around the room and survey those of you that were quick to pin down your responses, I bet um, your answers uh, are, include something like this, that he is God's son. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the one that God sent to the world. And of course, all those are sufficient for why we worship him as well. Maybe you uh, want more de- You went into more detail. Maybe you wrote something like he died for our sins. And of course he did. He came to save us from sin and death. And, and maybe, you ju- maybe you're still writing because you're just going on a theological uh, di- di- you know, uh, a thesis about, hey, this is who Jesus is and this is what he did. And 25 verses I can quote that tell you who he is and what he did. And if that's you, if that's your position, then, uh, you know, hey, maybe you should do this sometime. But if you answered anything like this, that's spot on. Of course, he is God's son. He is the Messiah. He came to die for our sins and save us. And, and I want you to just to think, how long have you known that? Most of you, you've known that since you were old enough to talk or old enough to write, old enough to read. You knew that before you ever read the Bible, probably. Now, some of you maybe came to Christ later in life or you were told about Jesus whenever you were in your adulthood. I, I don't know. But a lot of us, even if you're not, even if you weren't a Christian when you learned this, a lot of you, you have known this and it's been second nature to you since before you can even remember, Right? You learned about Jesus and you were, you were, you know, cemented in your position on Jesus before you had any other opinions, before you became certain, certain aligned, certain with certain politics, before you took on a certain profession, before you had any other aspirations in life, you could tell someone, this is who Jesus is. And this is what he came to do. Isn't that interesting that so many of us, we've been brought up in a world where it's not even a question who Jesus is. It's not even a question what he did and why he should be worshiped. Who is Jesus and why do we worship him? He is God's son. He is our savior. He, and that's why we worship him. He came to save us and promise us heaven when we die. Again, we've been singing songs about that since we were in Sunday school. Now, this little exercise, maybe it was a Sunday school level exercise for some of you. And, and, and for others, maybe it relieved, it helped you relieved to know that you know more than you think. It, it, but if this is brand new information for you, and for somebody it might be, uh, or if this information is still in question for you, again, you're in the right place because that's what churches exist for. But maybe to you, and maybe for most of you, it's undeniable who Jesus is and why Jesus came. To you, and probably most of us, if we're being honest, to most of us, maybe it's obvious who Jesus is and why we worship him. And maybe it would be hard for you to believe that there was a time when nobody knew 
the answers to these questions. The things that you've known since you were a child, there was a time, not that long ago in the grand scheme of history, there was a time when nobody knew the answers to, the, to these questions. And I'm not being cute and talking about before he was born, right? Of course, nobody knew then because he wasn't here. Uh, I'm talking about um, while he was on earth and while he was in his ministry, before, while he was becoming famous, there were people that really didn't know who he was and really didn't know what his motives were. In fact, for much of Jesus' life, for much of his life, maybe it's safe to say for most of his ministry, the majority consensus was even those that were closest to him were really not sure who he is. He's doing some incredible things and he says a lot of incredible things, but we really aren't sure who he is. And as far as the worship part, definitely the majority response would be, why would we worship him? He's just a man. Yes, he's capable of doing amazing things, but as far as worshiping someone just like us, that would be a little bit sacrilegious, don't you think? I mean, he's great and all, but he's just a man, isn't he? Now, for us, it's a wild, unbelievable thing to imagine that there is a world where Jesus is not known as the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. It's unbelievable for us to imagine that people would question whether or not they should worship him. And that's the thing. The fact that you can't imagine a world where it is in question, where it is uncertain, speaks volumes of the impact that Jesus has had on the world and the ripple effect that he's had on every generation since his own. This is in large part to the fact that some of his followers wrote down in great detail, everything they knew about Jesus and preserve for us the story of Jesus, telling us who he is and why they came to worship him and why they believed that we should too. Now, the interesting thing about his followers, and I think it makes it more relatable, they did not write down any of the stories that they were observing. They did not write down anything about Jesus until after he was no longer with them. They weren't writing the stories down as they went. They wrote these stories down after he was gone, after they were certain about who he was. They weren't sure who he was while they were following him. They weren't sure what he had come to do while they were following him. And then, of course, when he actually did it, they became certain. But they were fans of Jesus from day one. Don't get me wrong. They were fans of Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. How could they not be? He was a wonder worker. He was a miracle worker. He was an authoritative speaker. He was there for them when nobody else was. Yes, they were fans of his, but... They did not really know who he was or what he had come to do and, and why they would worship him. Now, as far as answering who was he and why did he come, they could not do that until they saw the whole story, until they watched the whole arc. Now, within just a few years after he was gone, they would set out to chronicle and write down what they had witnessed, but suddenly it all would make sense to them and they were compelled to show as many as they could. And their approach is what gets me. And this is what's so unique about the Bible because it's not just a book that fell out of heaven one day. It's a book full of many different books and documents written by people just like us, many of whom just observed the stories that they wrote about. And that's what gets me. They did not hide the fact when they began writing these stories out, they did not hide the fact that they believed that Jesus was more than just a man, that he was indeed worthy of worship, which is, uh, if you think about it, that's a pretty big statement. When you read their accounts, they don't try to sell us on, well, this is who Jesus is and this is why you should worship him. They come right out of the box and say, this is a man you've never heard of before. Let me tell you why you should worship him before you do anything else. 
They don't bother to go around the corner and say, well, hey, let me tell you the story and how it all come to be. And here is Jesus, and this is why you should worship him. If you read the accounts of his followers, most of them come right out of the box and they say, this is Jesus, you should worship him. And then they just give you the proof or the, the, the stories about him. One of his followers, Matthew, the one who wrote his account or his story probably first, uh, begins his story like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So for his Jewish readers, which is who he was writing to, they would have instantly got the, the, the weight or the gravity of the story he was writing. So our people began with Abraham. Our kingdom began with David. So now he is putting Jesus on the level with them. But he doesn't introduce Jesus as from Nazareth. He introduces Jesus as God's Messiah. So he says, this is the story of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one from heaven. This is the story of Jesus, who is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered us. David legitimized us. Jesus is going to save us and usher in the kingdom of God. So Matthew does not try to sell us on who Jesus is. He gets right out of the gate and says, this is who Jesus is. This is why you should worship him. Another follower who wasn't one of the 12 was a kid named John Mark, who was a disciple of Peter, who of course was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, we believe that Mark's version of the Jesus story is most likely Peter's story as written down by Mark. Here's how Mark begins his story. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And then he says, as it is written. So he goes immediately into quoting the Old Testament Jewish scriptures and telling us why Jesus has been predicted to be coming for a long, long, long time. So Mark says, this is the story about God's Messiah and it's the all-time good news we've been waiting for. So again, he doesn't introduce us softly to Jesus. He gets right up in front of us and says, let me tell you the story of Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, God's Son. This is the good news as in there is no good news apart from him. What you long to know about God is found only through Jesus. And again, these were people writing to people that had never heard about Jesus in many cases, that were interested in Jesus in some cases, but Jesus was not a household name when they wrote these stories. He was not as we know him to be. The world could not answer who he was and what he had done. But Matthew and Mark, they waste no time in getting right to the point. Jesus is God's Messiah. He came to do something that has been predicted for generations. He says, God, Jesus is God's son, as abstract that, that would have sounded. Mark, like Matthew, was so convinced of who Jesus was and why he was worthy of worship, they don't feel like they need to explain anything. They just start telling the story. Now, it's believed that these two books were written within 10 years of the real-time event. So around 40 to 45 AD, these books would have been written. Now, they weren't in massive circulation until years and years later, but most likely were written down and copied a few times and passed around to the local churches that were starting up in Judea and in the surrounding area. And, and many people began hearing the stories and feeling the impact that, of what was going on around and through the church. And the people began wondering, is all of this true? 
People had heard of Jesus by this point as 45 AD, 50 AD rolled around. But as far as they knew, he was a radicalized Jewish rabbi that upset Rome so much that they crucified him and he was gone. But not according to Matthew and not according to Mark, based on the exponential growth of the church as well, Jesus was very much alive. Nobody could explain it. No one could point their finger to how all this was possible. But according to Matthew and according to Mark and according to the church's growth, Jesus was not a part of history alone. He was in the present day. He was very much alive. So who was Jesus? According to Matthew and Mark, he not just was, but is God's son. He is the Messiah. He came with good news from God to us and for us. And then around 50 AD comes Luke. Luke was a physician turned historian, a physician turned historian who met some of the followers of Jesus as they made their way through Greece. The thousands of miles away from Judea, Luke met some of the early Christians, Paul being one of them, as they began to make their way through Macedonia and through Greece, thousands of miles away from where it all happened. Luke had a friend named Theophilus that was very wealthy and very curious about the Jesus movement. So Theophilus funded Luke's venture into research and investigating all things about Jesus. So about 15 years removed from when, they all, when the events took place, around 50 AD or so, Luke heads to Judea with pen and paper in hand to answer these questions. Who was Jesus and why are people worshiping him? And this is how Luke begins his story. And his story doesn't begin like Matthew or Mark. He's a little bit softer in his approach. But listen to, how, listen to the words that he uses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, so Luke Talk to those eyewitnesses and those ministers. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So Luke says, hey, no shade to other guys, but I've written the story in order from the very beginning of it all. I've given you an orderly account, old Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Theophilus, you've heard about Jesus. You want to know who he is? You want to know why people worship him? If you read my book, you will have certainty about these things. Now, Luke's intro to Theophilus and everyone that had the same intrigue regarding Jesus, Luke tells them, it's all true. Everything you've heard, it's all true. And I'm going to give you the proof of it all. Luke talked to the very people who saw it with their own eyes. He talked to Matthew. He talked to Mark. He talked to Jesus' mother, Mary. He talked to his brother, James. He talked to his number one follower, Peter. Luke talked to some of the characters on the periphery of the story. He talked to some retired shepherds who were there the night Jesus was born, who saw the sky light up and angels descend. And again, Luke tells us what they saw. Luke says, you might not believe this, but this is what they saw. And this is what... Many have attested to the night he was born. The shepherds said an angel came to them and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Remember Mark, the good news? Remember Jesus, Matthew talking about a, a, somebody coming that's going to do something like Abraham and David, but on a bigger scale? The shepherds heard the angel say, This is good news of great joy for all people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So Mark called him the son of God. Matthew called him the Christ. This is the same thing the shepherds heard, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And then we were told suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying or singing. So they saw the sky rip apart and they saw the angels of heaven, a band of heavenly angels singing out. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. So something from heaven, something happened and what was going on in heaven was coming to earth or God had sent something from heaven to earth and that something was a someone. So by 50 AD, less than 20 years after Jesus had lived and assumedly died, all around the world, people were not just asking the question, who is Jesus? Why do people worship him? They were answering the questions because according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to his followers and those that encountered him, it was undeniable that Jesus was God's Messiah, bringing good news to us and for us to do something for us that we could not and we would not that no one else could do for us no one else would do for us that we cannot do for ourselves but there was another follower of Jesus who had a story to tell not to discredit the others but his would turn out to be the most authentic and the most important he would not write his story until he was a very old man almost too old after many inquiries he finally agreed to do it about 60 years after it all happened, he would finally tell the story, or his version, of the Jesus story. Now, during those 60 years, a lot more had happened. Rome had begun persecuting Christians because of the threat their Christ posed the emperor. Rome invaded Judea and razed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, hoping that by doing away with the origin, by taking away the foundation of Christianity, they would do away with Christianity by getting rid of the people in the city that started it all. Hopefully, whatever remnant there was that was still fueling this movement, it would be faded away. Yet, in the years following 70 AD, despite the destruction and despite the persecution, the Jesus movement only grew and grew and grew. When people were told to deny their faith or die, well, they died. Yet within the movement, nobody actually believed they were gone. Because after all, Jesus had been dead for decades, yet the world was filled with his presence and power and not even Rome could deny it. So by 90 AD, by 90 AD, about 60 years after it all started, there were Christian gatherings all over the world in every Roman province. Despite the persecution, despite the destruction, within 60 years, this is so unbelievable, within 60 years, there were Christian gatherings in every Roman province, every territory of Rome, from the Middle East to Africa to all across Europe and parts of modern day Turkey and Russia. There were churches in every province. And in those provinces, there were leaders that were dedicating their lives to the church, elders, pastors, deacons, serving their communities. The message of Christ was everywhere. And if you would study what was going on in those communities, it was even more remarkable because slaves were being freed. Who would free a slave? Who would do something that crazy? Slaves were being freed. Women were no longer treated as property, but were treated as equals. Children were rescued after having been abandoned. In these communities, lives were transformed, lives were changed, and more and more, there was no denying who Jesus was and why he had come to be 
worshiped like he was. Now, literally the world and humanity was changed as a result of Jesus. Yes, there was still plenty of evil, but in the face of it all, there was a newfound boldness and a newfound purity. It was like the spirit of Jesus lived on through and in his people. Clearly, Jesus' impact was much more than what a man could accomplish. The more his story was told, the more his spirit seemed to spread. By 90 AD, many of the original followers of Jesus had been killed for telling their stories. Matthew, Mark, Peter, James, all the disciples except for one had been martyred. Most had been martyred. Again, all that was left was Matthew and Mark and Luke's stories now being called gospels because they contained the good news of God. But there was one follower left, and boy, did he have a story to tell. And his story would go on to impact the world that even people who never picked up their Bible, this is what's so remarkable and why anybody that says, I don't believe Christianity is real, or I don't believe that there's power of God behind it, anybody that says, you know, I, you know, I, don't, I don't take that serious, if they really were to hear the story, if they were to hear how it all came together, I, I think they would begin to question whether or not they should dismiss it so quickly. And the most remarkable thing about this last follower's story is people have memorized verses from his story that have never picked up the Bible. People can quote his story that have never even read the Bible or never even been in church. Even if they don't want to know what it says, they can't help but have heard the word and know the word. His story tells us so clearly who Jesus is and why he came and why we should worship him. Now, the man, the follower, as you probably know already, is a guy named John, and his, real, his official name would have been John Zebedeeson, because in the ancient world, you were named after your father. So John, son of Zebedee, if he were to write his name down on a document or a contract or signing himself to something, he would have written John Zebedeeson. Now, what makes John's story so powerful in the is the clarity and the confidence that he writes his story with. And he wrote with such authenticity, and he's a worthy source, maybe more than anybody else, because John was a follower of Jesus from day one of his ministry. And only one other person can even say that. John Zebedeeson was a follower of Jesus from day one because John came to know Jesus because he followed another guy named John, John Zachariah's son, or we know him as John the Baptist, John the one who was baptizing people in the Jordan River. That's how he got that name. Now, John the Baptist is famous because he was the first and only successful person to ever start a rival movement that pulled people away from the Jewish religion. So by the first century uh, the world, the people of Judea were disenchanted with Judaism. It wasn't helping them to get to God. It made them feel worse than it made them feel better. So there were people who were defecting from the Jewish faith. And John the Baptist was calling people people away from the temple, away from the religious system, and he was establishing something new. And his gathering place was not a temple or a holy building, but it was the Jordan River banks. Thousands of people began making a pilgrimage to hear him and see him. And John, son of Zebedee, actually believed so much in what John the Baptist was preaching and teaching that he joined the movement. This movement was all about being burnt out by Judaism, not actually helping people get to God, but making them feel worse, not helping them overcome their sin. You see, people like John, son of Zebedee, and people like John the Baptist, and people that followed John the Baptist, they had come to realize that religion was not their friend. Religion was not going to help them because religion made people feel condemned in their sin, 
but gave them no way around it or out of it. Religion was very good at telling them, telling them they were wrong. Religion was very good and stern at condemning their sin, but it gave them no way out of it. It was really good at pointing to God, but it provided no way for people to get to God. John the Baptist preached that God was about to do something brand new. God was about to usher in a new era for the world. He was going to bring his reign to earth, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way that everyone was invited to get in on a spiritual reality that would not replace the current reality, but dwell alongside it. It would prepare the world for a better kingdom to come. And this is where Jesus comes in. Because John the Baptist was preparing, was claiming to prepare the way for the Savior of the world uh, that they had been waiting on, setting the stage for the Christ. And when, John, when Jesus came to visit John's scene one day, when Jesus came to have John baptize him one day, when Jesus showed up at John's camp, John immediately pointed to him. And John said to his followers, look, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And in this moment, John the Baptist tells every one of his followers, y'all should unfollow me because this is who I've been talking about. This is the Lamb of God who has come to remove everything standing in the way of us and God. I've been preparing the way. He is going to make the way. And the truth is, only two of John's followers left him and began following Jesus. One of them was John, son of Zebedee, and one of them was a guy named Andrew. Both were fishermen. Both left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. But many of John's followers said, well, we like you. You're a bold preacher. You're powerful. You've made us feel close to God. We're going to stick with you for a while. But John the Baptist said, no, 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 no. I am decreasing this guy. He's the one. This is the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin. What stands in your way he has come to remove. Now, nobody had ever claimed to be able to do this. Nobody would ever, nobody ever would because it was a crazy idea, an impossible idea, really. Religion existed to mediate between people and God because there was no believed way to access him ourselves. In the Jewish religion and really every religion, lambs and goats were sacrificed to the pacify God, to appease God, hopefully to stay his judgment uh, that we deserved until the next one was offered. But, but John doesn't stutter. He said, Jesus came to take away, not just forgive or not just take away the punishment that we deserve, but he comes to take away the stumbling block itself. He came to remove any and all barriers. And that was enough for John, the son of Zebedee. That was all he needed to hear. If this guy is gonna take away what stands in between me and God, I am gonna fix my eyes on him and I'm never turning away. Now, John would be so fixated on Jesus. John would go on to tell a story so remarkable that everybody in this building, everyone in the world has heard his story. And if they haven't heard the whole story, they've heard at least one sentence of the story. 
John would go on to write, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this is what John was willing to stake on Jesus, that God loved the world and he gave the world something, that God's starting point toward the world is not anger or condemnation or judgment, but it's love. And God has given the world a gift because when you love somebody, you give them something, don't you? God so loved the world that he gave the world something, but it wasn't a something, it was a someone. And if we put our faith in this someone, he is our way into everlasting life. At the end of John's story, he summarizes his book like this. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, when John started following Jesus, he knew he was more than just a man. And by the end of their time together, he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who could put, who could put life into the hearts that had been slain by sin. And it's how, Jesus, it's how John starts his story that speaks volumes and, and carries so much awe and wonder regarding how John regarding how John understood Jesus to a world that was wondering, who is Jesus and why do y'all worship him? John starts his story different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Rather than just getting right into the story about Jesus, John decides to explain who Jesus is. And he runs risk of confusing people or losing people, but John believes that this is important, that he's got to start the story off this way because this is actually going to draw people in even more and more intently. He begins by telling people who Jesus is or explaining who Jesus is. And by the time he was writing his story, people had heard of Jesus. People were worshiping Jesus. So John wants us to know just who Jesus is and why we should worship him. But keep in mind, when John met Jesus, he seemed like an ordinary man to most people. But at some point along the way, John realized that Jesus was much more than a man. John came to believe that Jesus was undeniably the source of God's truth. He came to cling to every word that, uh, of Jesus as God's truth. And John has a unique way of describing Jesus. And he's the only per- person that describes Jesus like this. And he does it, and, and people were so enamored by it that they began to use this as their way of describing Jesus. And you do this too. John understood and described Jesus as God's final, definitive, and most authoritative message. So when John is trying to come up with a word that captures Jesus succinctly, John says, if I were to tell you who Jesus is in one word, it would be, he is God's word. He is God's final, he is God's definitive, he is God's authoritative message. If God has anything to say to us, it's Jesus. What he did, the life he lived, Everything he says is a witness to God's true and most pure character. Now, John takes a brave approach by telling us, by starting the story in the beginning. And when he says in the beginning, he's meaning the very beginning. He's talking about before there was anything else beginning. In the beginning, when there was just God, the divine force, the the one who preexisted all things, John says, before God said, let there be anything, there was God. And John says, Jesus was there. Jesus is that same force. He is that divine being that in the beginning, Jesus has always been God's final and decisive and definitive word. 
John says that Jesus predates flesh and blood. He is the very essence of divine power and reason. That through him, all things were created. So do you see what John is saying about Jesus? He's not just from God. He's not just the son of God in some abstract way. What John is saying about Jesus is that he is God made flesh. He's not just an anointed one. He's not just someone sent by God, someone chosen by God. John says, Jesus is God. He is the word of God put into motion. He is the heart of God, the power of God, the character of God. He is God, the creator, God, the almighty put into flesh and blood. In verse 14, he says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So after telling us about the word of God that created all things, that is the power behind God, the essence of God, the spirit of God, he says that word became one of us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father. As in this would have been red flag for the Jews because nobody could see God. The glory of God would strike you dead. And John says, let me just explain to you. You may not believe me, but this is what I've experienced. The glory of God, the power of God, the nature of God. I have seen him with my own eyes because God became flesh and blood. It may sound unbelievable. It may seem unbelievable. But if you want to know who Jesus is, he is God in a body. And I have beheld his glory as if I stepped onto Sinai and the veil was removed, as if I stepped into heaven and saw it with my own eyes. Verse 16, he says, and of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. He said, I know what y'all tell me from the Old Testament. Oh, no one can see God and live. <laughs> he said, that's fine. You want to say that if you want to. But the son of God, Jesus Christ has declared him as in God has been made known and made visible in Jesus. You may not believe me, you may question my sanity, but John was absolutely convinced that Jesus was God in flesh, that he had come face to face with God himself. And if you read the whole story of John, it's clear to John that he came face to face. John would say, I became a follower of Jesus and I stayed a follower of Jesus because I was convinced Jesus is undeniably God made flesh. Who is Jesus? He is God in flesh and blood. Who is Jesus? He is God's word put into motion. You know what this means? That everything we need to know about God, everything we need to think about God, everything there is to know about God is found in Jesus. And maybe more pressing for you today, what you need to know regarding how God feels about you and what God thinks about you is revealed in Jesus. Now, I think if you were to ask John, what was the moment 
where it all began to make sense to you, John? What, was there one episode, was there one story, was there one day where you went from being a fan of Jesus, the anointed one, to a follower and a believer in Jesus, God made flesh? I think John would say, yeah, there's one. They're all great, but let me tell you one of those stories. On one occasion, Jesus and the disciples made their way to the temple one early morning. Just as animal sacrifices were starting up, as people began making their way to the temple mount, and it was said the temple was so, would glisten so brightly under the sun because it was made of white limestone. It was plated with gold. People called the temple the light of the world. People called it that because it was said to lead people to God. But the reality was just as many felt it, just as many felt like it stood between them and God. It brought people close, but did not bring people in. It brought people near, but did not bring people to. On many occasions in their coming near, people had a worse experience because their sin was exposed. The temple's light would blind them and put them in darkness. So that was the case this morning as Jesus and his disciples began observing people making their way in. There was a group of religious leaders making their way up the mount, but this morning they were accompanied by a particular guest, not a guest of honor though. They were bringing a woman with them. This woman had been caught in the act of adultery and they thought it was a good chance to prove to Jesus uh, or to catch Jesus uh, in a moment of, of, of discomfort. They thought Jesus claims to speak for God, uh, but we don't really think he's the authoritative voice of God. So we're gonna use this as a chance to pin him in a corner. You, you see, they were convinced that Jesus was just a man trying to win people's hearts and affections. He, but if he was really righteous, if he really stood for God, he would use the law to condemn this woman. There was no way he could take her side. So in their efforts to see Jesus uh, take God's side, they set the stage for Jesus to show them just how closely he really was to God's side. So he says to them, if you know the story, whoever of you is without sin, you can be the first one to throw the stone at this woman. He says, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the story goes that he knelt down and began writing on the ground. And in John 8, the scripture says that as he was writing on the ground, the religious leaders heard what he was writing. Now, that's not a typo. They heard what he was writing. Maybe it was that he was writing down the sins they had committed. And he wasn't saying it out loud. They exposed this woman publicly. But Jesus was writing out their own sins. And the only people that heard those sins was the people that committed those sins. Nonetheless, everybody there with a rock in their hand began dropping those rocks and eldest to youngest, they all left one by one. And then it was just Jesus and this woman. There she was huddled on the ground, judged and condemned and alone and broken. But for the first time in her life, she felt a presence like none other. And you know the story, but this is what John 8 tells us. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are your accusers? Has anyone or no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus says, let me tell you something, ma'am. I have removed everything in between you and God. Even the religious system that pretended to represent God, I have 
removed it. I have freed you from your bondage. And he encourages her that you can finally feel the light. The temple was said to reflect, you can feel the light from heaven. And notice how Jesus communicates God's truth. God does not condemn you. Sin does not control you. God forgives you and God frees you. He does not shine light on the broken law, but he shines light on her broken soul. And then he says this in John 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And he says later on in verse number 19, when they ask him, who do you think you are? He says, if you have known me, you know my father. Jesus says to you and he says to me, to everybody, he's come to illuminate the hope of God in the way the temple and religion failed to. He says, I am the light of the world. If you can't make it to me, don't worry. I'm coming to where you are to show you the way, to be the way. Jesus redefined and relocated the temple mount because it's wherever we kneel and wherever we surrender, wherever we are, there he is with us. Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, Look at me. John says throughout his book, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus and look only at Jesus. And if anybody claims to speak for God, but they don't represent or speak what Jesus said, then they're not speaking for God. I think that's what did it for John. I think that's the moment Jesus took on a brand new presence. Not only was he the Christ, but he was undeniably God made flesh. Jesus had come to reveal God's truth. Yes, our sin has the power to condemn us, but God has the power to forgive it and remove it. Jesus came to do just that. Jesus took sin on himself, allowing it to kill him so that it would not and could not kill us. Do you hear that? He says to this woman, I don't condemn you and sin no longer controls you because he would take her sin and he would take her condemnation and he would be killed in her place, in our place. So therefore sin cannot and will not kill any of us. This is the gospel that the creator of us all, the lawmaker, the lawgiver, the holy and perfect almighty God became one of us to show us the truth about ourselves and about God. We are overcome by sin, but God has provided a solution. We deserve judgment. That's true. But the greater truth is Jesus gives us grace. He took our place so that we might come face to face with God. And in the moment that Jesus took your place, overwhelmed and overcome by your sin, he reflects to you the heart of our God in heaven who says to you and he says to me, I don't condemn you. Go now and sin, be ruled by sin no more. Faith in him fills us with his spirit made possible by his resurrection. And that is who John came face to face with the God of the universe made flesh. That's who Jesus is. That's the story that John tells. That's God made flesh, truth and grace on display, the savior of the whole world. That's why we worship him. Because in him, we have what we cannot find anywhere or anyone else, salvation, freedom, and eternal life. So let me ask you, is that who Jesus is to you? 
It doesn't matter if you can answer with a textbook definition who Jesus is. I hope you can, but I hope it's more than that. Is that who Jesus is to you? Is that why you worship him because of what he's done for you and the power you feel he's shared with you? Maybe you've been introduced to a different Jesus than you grew up with, or maybe you've learned of a different Jesus than you had before. Maybe you realize that he deserves much more of your praise than you've been giving him. So today, and over the next couple of weeks, we are invited. This Easter season invites us to come and know him like John knew him, as more than just a man, as God made flesh. If you can't imagine God in skin sitting down beside you, and saying to you, I don't condemn you, but I'm here to give you something you can't find anywhere else. If that seems unbelievable to you, John says, I know it seems hard to believe, but it's undeniable. That is who Jesus is. And that is the Jesus who has changed our world. And that is the Jesus that invites every single one of you to know him personally, to walk with him daily and to receive from him eternal life. He is the one who saves us and gives us much more than we deserve and can find anyone else, anywhere else. So I ask you today, is that the Jesus you know? And is that the Jesus you worship? And do you worship him in light of what he's done for you? This Easter season invites us all to come and hear and know the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and takes us in to the presence of God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this fresh reminder of who Jesus not just was, but still is. He sits on the throne of heaven. He is God made flesh. He is the picture of God. He is the full display of God. He is the definition of God. Lord, I pray that everybody here today has a up close and personal, clear understanding of God. And I pray that more importantly, they understand where they stand with you that Jesus has made it clear to them how he feels about them and where they fit in and where they fit into your story and into your kingdom. Lord, I pray you would remind us all and you would reinvigorate us around this good news that Jesus is God made flesh and in his presence, face to face with him, we receive eternal life. We receive salvation. We are no longer condemned. We are no longer controlled. We receive life from him. Lord, as you invite us to come to you, would we be, could you make it so that we could receive the fullness of your grace and truth? Would you bring us into the glorious presence of God Almighty by bringing Jesus into our presence and into our hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.